Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast. And I'm coming to you from, uh, as always, from just outside of Boston. And you know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant but not famous. And well, the not famous part is ironic because they are all well-known and respected in their fields by their peers and in the communities that they serve, but my next door neighbor might not recognize their name, <laughs> but they really are brilliant and they're committed to their work. And I love meeting these amazing people, sharing a little bit about them and their passions and the work that they're doing. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope that some positive things come from sharing their stories with you and to the universe. And so today I'm excited to have on my show, Dr. Misty Shields. And Dr. Shields is a translational thoracic oncologist and assistant professor at Indiana University. As a translational physician scientist in collaboration with basic scientists and clinicians, she seeks to help shape prospective efforts and guide funding to areas of unmet clinical need in areas such as small cell lung cancer. Dr. Shields earned her medical degree at the University of Texas Health Houston McGovern Medical School. She then completed a residency at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and fellowships at the University of South Florida Moffitt Cancer Center and the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. She's another amazing human that I'm honored to have on my show. So Dr. Shields, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure and honor to be here. And absolutely, this is this is exciting. And I, I am looking forward to our conversation today. Awesome. Thank you so much. And it's really, I really enjoyed when we, when we first met, uh, hearing about you and I'm, I'm happy, I'm really excited to share your story. So, uh, as you sit there in Indiana, I'm in Boston and you're in Indiana. Uh, but I would love to have you start by telling us about yourself. And as I like to say, you know, tell us about the younger Misty Shields. Uh, and I know you're from Texas, but you have family that has roots in Boston. So Absolutely. give us a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, you know, the, the younger me, probably many, many decades ago, um, the younger me, uh, I, I grew up, I'm the baby of five. I have three brothers and a sister. Um, I had um, wonderful parents who were married and happily in love um, and, and until I um, actually uh, had my father diagnosed with small cell lung cancer. Um, I was 13 at the time. He was in his young 40s. Um, and he... Um, you know, was diagnosed. Um, it was something that we kept very private. He was going to be, um, you know, treated and put this behind us. Um, and unfortunately, after many uh, treatments and trials, um, he lost his battle to small cell lung cancer in 2000 um, when I was 15. And so um, the, the younger me is still the same me, uh, just with a few more wrinkles, I guess. Um, and uh, so that, that led me to onto my path of, of how do I become an oncologist and help somebody else have their mom or dad or husband or wife or, or family member or friend a lot around for longer. Yeah. And I know when we talked, you, you talked about, and I think you were, you said you were 15 at the time and your dad was a Marine and he was this, you know, really tough, tough man and, and good man. And, um, it really, it really did shape your uh, your future, I think, right? And and I know you you mentioned you 
you know, you, you saw the movie Gattaca when you were a kid and you, so I think, you know, you maybe were going that direction anyway, but I think this, this, as oftentimes happens, you know, we have these personal experiences and thank you for sharing that. But I, th I think that that kind of did help shape the direction of where you were going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I fell in love with science actually in fourth grade um, and, you know, wanted to know more, would, would learn and stay after and, and work with my teacher and, and get to, you know, be able to do middle school curriculum and, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one sessions and, and just try to, you know, learn as much as I could about, about science and, you know, here come uh, early middle, middle school, I um, ended up, you know, seeing the movie Gattaca. What a, like, awesome concept and just, you know, really eye-opening <laughs> that, you know, that we have this this DNA, this, this this genetic sequence that makes us unique and and um, drives us and, and sets our potential, you know, sets us apart. And uh, I wanted to learn more. You know, I fell in love with science, and then um, you know, having my dad fall sick and um, pass, you know, I knew um, when he was getting treatments at the VA in Dallas, um, you know, because he was a Marine, um, it, it really was, um, you know, that was, that was the moment I knew exactly standing in those halls and seeing those oncologists, uh, in the hospital at the VA in Dallas, that that was the, that was what I was meant to be and what it meant to do going forward. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Science has, is, is my first passion and love and has, has continued to shape and transform my, uh, my outlook on, on, you know, oncology and on how we approach cancer. Yeah, you know, I, I had a guest, one of my guests on my show, uh, Dr. Marcus from um, uh, from Emory in Atlanta, and he was he was talking about some volunteer work that he does in helping encourage middle school uh, girls to be interested in science. And it just kind of struck me when you said fourth grade, you know, uh, being interested in science. And I, I love seeing more women, uh, particularly in oncology. I think it's I think it's amazing. Uh, so I wonder if that's if that's still kind of a challenge to get young girls interested in science or is that different now or is it better now or kind of, I'd love your perspective on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that historically, you know, um, a lot of the, you know, STEM careers, I think have been, um, you know, the majority have been made up of, of men. Um, and I think as women have introduced into the workforce over many several decades, you know, um, and, uh, become, you know, pioneers and leaders and, you know, um, CEOs and, 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 you know, these thought leaders, it's these key opinion leaders. It's, um, it's incredible. I think that, you know, truly it is now just a, an equal playing field in a lot of ways. I think there's still some ways that we can continue to advance. Um, but, you know, I think that, uh, there's a lot of initiatives for, for STEM, you know, the science technology and, and all of these, um, areas of, you know, that, that historically women weren't as um, involved in. I think it's really, you know, starting to almost flip the other way, which is exciting. You know, um, my, my dad was an electrical engineer. He held um, many patents. And so his, uh, his, I think my mom says that, you know, I, I kind of got his brains and um, how thinking <laughs> through things and um, you know, just thinking through things in, in a signaling fashion, you know, with resistors and all the different circuits and things. Um, I remember sitting at the table when we were little and um, helping set up, you know, motherboards and help assemble chips uh, at the at the kitchen table and, and um, 
he was a uh, uh, self-employed and um, just never, never stopped thinking and, and creating. So, what a, what an what an uh, interesting uh, background in childhood, and you uh, engineering is something that's always baffled me because I I just I don't understand how these people think because they're just so brilliant, but they're brilliant in such a different way that I can't I can't even imagine sitting down trying to put together a, a, a resistor board or or all the other stuff that that he amazingly probably did right. Yeah. So, um, but, but your mom was no slouch either. So I know you mentioned to me, um, you know, she's from the Boston area, which which of course I love. And we had the, the NFL draft started last night. So of course I was, as I was preparing for this today, I was thinking about that because I know your mom was, um, I I believe you told me she was a Patriots cheerleader. So go Patriots. I don't know if she's still a Patriots fan or not. I have to ask you. I didn't yeah, ask you that yeah. before. I, I think it's somehow imprinted in the in the DNA. I think of the Patriots <laughs> fans, you know, with or without Tom Brady, I think it, it still holds true. Those are some <laughs> diehard fans. Um, I love it. My mom, as you said, she she grew up in Boston, um, right there in Dorchester, and uh, she was the captain cheerleader for the Patriots uh, in the early '70s, and that's how she actually met my dad, who was a Marine stationed there in Boston, and she was, you know. Um, Miss Congeniality, Miss Boston. She didn't, she doesn't know a stranger. She just actually was <laughs> visiting me and she can strike, strike up a conversation with anyone and uh, easily become best friends. So I love that. And I love the thank you for sharing about your parents. I, I love the fact that you, you shaped it as, you know, that your parents, you know, were in love and, and raised you in a loving family. So uh, that's, you know, great. I always like to hear the, the personal stories, the background of like how you how you developed. Now you had an interest in science, and then so you did your PhD first before you went to medical school, which is interesting. And I know there's a story behind that because I know that when you were in high school, you out you did some outreach to some famous people, and tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So um, while I was still in high school, I um, you know back in the days of of AOL, you know before Google, um, <laughs> you know we. Uh, we didn't have, you go to the library a lot of times to do research and things mm. and, and projects. But uh, in the early days of the internet, um, I was fortunate to to stumble upon, you know, Dr. John Mena, who um, was ironically, you know, and serendipitously, you know, uh, stationed and worked in Dallas at UT Southwestern and has been for many years and still there uh, as of today. And he is truly the grandfather of lung cancer research. He and Dr. Addy Gazdar established hundreds of lung cancer cell lines from patients he saw. And Dr. Gazdar was a pathologist and they were just best buds and they, you know, created the world we know today of lung cancer research. And so while I was in high school, I I found that, you know, he was at Southwestern and I uh, found a phone number and I reached out to him and I said, how do I become someone like you, how do I become an oncologist that works on lung cancer and helps with discoveries, you know, for, for patients. And, um, you know, anyone who knows Dr. Mena knows that he would give the shirt off his back and just a kind, kind, generous soul. And, um, you know, he told me get good grades and, you know, pay attention to class and work hard. And, you know, if you want to come join my lab one day, you know, just let me know. And so we kept in touch and, uh, finished college, um, studied biochemistry and genetics, and worked in a lab the whole time I was, aside from, I think, one week of being in college, I joined a lab there and 
my undergrad at Texas A&M and uh, applied to grad school at, only at Southwestern and, and got in and um, rotated a few, through a few, a few labs just to make sure I wasn't being biased and then saved his last, his lab, you know, for the best for last and, and ended up loving it, joining his lab. And I, I did my PhD work, work with him. He's still, you know, a wonderful mentor and, and kind friend and a hero to me. So I, um, I'm forever thankful for everything he's done for me. Isn't that amazing? I, I love these stories because it rings true with so many of the people I've had on my show that there was somebody like that who impacted them. And to your story, it's, it's even more cool because you were literally in high school and you found this person who took you seriously and, and gave you advice. And, and then, and, and then ultimately you ended up working with him and, and you have, and you have now lifelong friends with him. That is so special, right? Yeah. He, he, anybody who knows Dr. Mena just knows how incredibly special and so generous and so kind and, he will make, you know, anyone feel like, you you know, you're the only person on the university really makes, makes people just want to be the best version of themselves and just makes people light up. And I'm so honored to know him and to have trained under him and, and work for him. And it's just, he's, he's truly a, a gift to oncology. Yeah. And, and so, so when you have mentors like that, who really are, you know, not only mentors, but really kind of sponsors who really helped encourage you along your way and, and created opportunities for you. But then what I love about medicine and, and particularly in oncology where that's my, where my knowledge base is, is that, that now that you will have that perspective and you will be doing the same thing to the next generation that come before you. Because we know that, that the, what, what we're seeing today and particularly in lung cancer is built upon the shoulders of the people like John Minna and others many others. And now you benefit from that. And you will now, people like you will now, you know, help bring up the next generation. And, and, and it's just, that's how it, that's how it advances. Right. 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 Yeah. That's very cool. I, I wholeheartedly agree. You know, um, the, the advances we're seeing today, the treatments we're seeing today, the targeted therapies, immunotherapies, those could not exist or stand alone without all of the many decades and tireless hours and, you know, failed projects and, you know, frustrations and all the advances that have been over the many, many years and the dedicated, passionate researchers and clinicians that have been before this, my generation. Yeah. And I, th I when I know, when I, I have friends who are, who are basic academic uh, researchers, you know, who talk about, even if you do it, if, even if you do an experiment, you go all the way down this path and it doesn't work. It's still learning. You're still learning from right. that, which I, which is an amazing perspective to have and, and very special. So, but I know that you then, um, you know, wanted to move to the bedside, you know, from your, the discoveries work that you were doing and, and you I use a phrase, I think, bridging the gap. And I would love to have you tell us, you know, how you make that transition from, from where you were to, you know, to the bedside. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, um, you know, the area of being in the lab and being this idea and this person of discovery and being the first person to discover something new and, you know, could be, um, you know, dogma changing is, is incredibly fulfilling. That's, you know, um, um, just a place that is so special to me. Um, 
but I, I had this hole in my heart that I knew um, that I wanted to, you know, I wanted to treat patients. I wanted to treat people and be with them on their journey, just like someone was with, you know, the, doc- the doctors were with there, there with my dad and, um, and to be able to ha- help shape conversations and help, you know, hold their hand if it was bad news or to discuss next steps or, you know, just to, to break bad news, you know, or to celebrate exciting news or, you know, to build that rapport. That was really important to me. And no matter what lab experiment that I did or, or what, you know, mouse study, you know, the, it just wasn't, it didn't fill that hole. And so, you know, I had spoken with Dr. Minna many times about, you know, my passion for being um, able to serve at the bedside and, and pursue medicine. And, you know, he said, you, you should do it. You, you know, I think, I think you can do it and you'll be really good at it. And he encouraged me. And so I applied, I got in and, um, you know, I actually had to defer a year um, to, to kind of get the research and everything back under, you know, in a, in a manageable fashion, because it kind of happened more quickly than I thought. And so I actually deferred a year for my medical training and then um, defended my PhD and then went on to my medical school training. So, you know, here I am 10 years later after all of that. So <laughs> what a commitment. That's the other thing too. Yeah. This is the, the, the commitment that you've made, you know, for, for getting your PhD and, and that having such a sort of a backbone before you even went to, to, to medical school is really, um, really unique. And I think gives you a, a, a really kind of a cool perspective. And I'll kind of fast forward to, you know, you're at in, uh, Indiana University now. And how long have you been at Indiana? Since August of 2022. Okay, so you're relatively new to the, yeah. the Hoosier State. So, yes. uh, so how did you, first of all, how did you get, how did you end up um, at, at IU and, and then tell us, you know, uh, you know, what you think of, uh, as a native Texan being, um, in the Midwest and Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, first off, I love it. Um, you know, it's really nice to have four actual seasons, um, (laughs) with snow and a fall with foliage and, you know, it's not 105 or 110 degrees and, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you're having to blast the AC or you're sticking to your seats in your car. Um, you know, so it, it's, it, it's really, truly nice to have a, um, a very balanced, um, you know, weather <laughs> forecast than, uh, than just Texas where it's, it can be, well, I guess it could be balanced and it could be all four seasons in one day sometimes. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I ended up at IU. It was, um, you know, very, I think, serendipitous in a way of, you know, there were, um, when you finish your fellowship, you make, you know, um, you or your mentor make phone calls and to see, you know, if there's, or you look at job postings, you look at different um, opportunities that you may know that they're looking for somebody. And so, you know, I just cold emailed, I looked at all the NCI designated cancer centers. And I said, you know, wherever, um, you know, I'm, I'm meant to be, I'm meant to be. And so I, looked at them all very equally and tried to be very objective, looked at all the um, comprehensive cancer centers with the NCI and, you know, looked at what paces that had, you know, thought leaders in lung cancer. And one that incredibly stood out was, was Indiana university. You know, we have the, uh, you know, um, infamous Dr. Larry Einhorn here who oh. discovered the 
you know, cure for testicular cancer and has contributed so much to thoracic oncology. We have um, Dr. Nasser Hanna, who is here, um, who has led so many, so many trials that have led to FDA approvals for lung cancer. Dr. Shadia Jalal, who has uh, pioneered, you know, tons of studies in small cell as well as esophageal as a translational physician scientist and a mom of four. You know, so I looked at, you know, this was the opportunity. We had a brand new cancer center director who had big ideas and Dr. Kelvin Lee and just an infectious personality. They had, you know, these key thought leaders and mentors that are just the kindest people. Um, and then they really wanted to focus on small cell. Um, and so they, they wanted to bring me on board for that, that particular focus. And they supported my dream and my passion. Um, and just, it was a perfect opportunity and fit. Yeah. And, and I saw you smiling when you mentioned Dr. Einhorn, because yeah. I, I had mentioned that I met him, um, at the TTLC conference in yeah. Santa Monica recently. Didn't know who he was. Didn't know he was famous. I just yeah. happened to sit down next to him because I was an open seat and we started a conversation. He was very nice, but very humble because I, I didn't realize until the next day who he was. So it was kind of <laughs> kind of cool for me. Like I actually met Dr. Einhorn. He's pretty much the coolest uh, oncologist, you know, guy, you know, doctor there is, you know, he's a, uh, he, his, his practice is incredibly busy. He still practices full time. Um, wow. You know, he has a particular, it's the cutest, you know, he has a particular chair and a computer that he sits at that, you know, and uh, it's just, He's a, he's a lovely guy and he's just, you know, incredibly sharp and uh, incredibly well-read. And it, it's an honor to sit down, you know, two seats down from him in clinic and listen to him. And I'll he's bet. constantly teaching and uh, having trainees and fellows and, you know, just an incredible opportunity to, to know and listen to him. I'll, uh, you know, I'll share with my listeners that I shared with you that I didn't realize who he was until when I mentioned the next day, I was talking to my boss who was a two-time testicular cancer survivor. And I mentioned, I met Larry, I, uh, Dr. Einhorn, and he was like, oh my God, that guy saved my life. And I was like, Absolutely. I mean, he didn't get treated by him, but he, you know, he, he knows, he knew all about him. I was like, yeah. wow, that is so cool. I was in the presence of greatness and not even know it. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Incredibly oh. humble. I mean, now yeah. testicular cancer is like a, if it's, you know, found early greater than 95% cure rate. I mean, that's just outstanding. Yeah. And, and I, so I know that uh, we also talked about, I had recently met um, Dr. Jason Porter and I know that you um, know him and maybe you've collaborated with him, but um, I would love to have you share, you know, if there's any the research that you're most excited about, particularly in small cell lung cancer. I think most of the people who follow me and know or listen to my podcast, we know, what a challenge and uh, uh, devastating disease small cell lung cancer is. So I would love to have you share anything you'd like to about the work you're doing or what you're excited about. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll reverse back all the way back to Dr. Mena's lab. Um, you know, there, my, my PhD work was in non-small cell looking at um, a drug that's commonly still used today um, in first, second line, third line beyond of Pemetrexid looking at predictive biomarkers for Pemetrexid using doses and schedules that match what patients would see. And so um, as a collaboration, a separate project I worked on with Dr. Minna, as well as Dr. Melanie Cobb and Dr. Uh, Jahan Osborne at Southwestern, 
we were looking at small cell and um, Dr. Cobb's lab is a, um, she's incredibly famous for her role in MAP kinase, you know, the ERK pathway, proliferation pathways, and her discovery of that um, as a, um, as a basic scientist and the role in pancreatic uh, development. And so their lab was interested in pancreatic development. And uh, as part of that, there's this uh, gene called NeuroD1 that uh, happens to be important in uh, um, primitive uh, neurologic development, including in pancreatic cells. And so we, we saw that it was, you know, high and small cell. And so we, we followed that path and that led to the discovery of NeuroD as the second um, subtype of small cell lung cancer, uh, neuroendocrine subtype. And so, you know, um, that really helped, I think, kick off the discovery of PAL2F3 and YAP1 and now this inflamed subtype and, you know, Charlie Rudin's work and just this, these gorgeous um, translational studies that I think are going to be implementing into the clinic hopefully soon of looking at these neuroendocrine subtypes and the role of them for the treatment of small cell lung cancer. So a little bit going back, uh, you know, 10 plus years, um, but now going forward, you know, uh, in, in July, I will be having my own independent laboratory here at Indiana University um, and studying overcoming chemo resistance and lung cancer, particularly in small cell. One of those projects that I have that's activated and uh, accruing and collecting samples on patients is for liquid biopsies. And so that is looking at a minimally invasive approach. So it's just a tube of blood or a couple tubes of blood. When patients come for scans, they get a few tubes of blood that are collected and stored away. And we can look at RNA and DNA and different signatures, um, including methylation, which is just what, what genes are on and off in a cell. Um, and see how that changes over time as patients go through their treatment. If they have progression or, in, you know, their tumors growing or spreading, you know, what the, what those little key signatures are that maybe give us um, insight into how we can, you know, treat and transform this disease. That's amazing. You know, I, I, my, when I had, uh, when I was uh, diagnosed with cancer, it was an, it was a neuroendocrine cancer. And I, as everyone knows, I'm not a scientist, so I don't understand. I know a little bit, kind of a little bit understood what you were talking about because I have a friend who's, who does a lot of work um, in epigenetics and, you know, talking about regulation and things like that, which is, right. so this is your own, so you said that you're, this is your own lab now, you're leading, you don't, yeah, yeah. wow, so, that's awesome. Yes, yeah, so um, Indiana University was, was very generous. They kept encouraging me, you've got to get back in the lab and you know, uh, be able to, to translate and to do both. And so they have fully supported my dream. So I'll continue to have patients in clinic and then the rest of the week um, be in the lab, be in my own lab and, and have uh, some exciting science going on. Oh my gosh. I just got goosebumps. That was, that is so exciting. Cause that is like, yeah. again, when I, I love to, you know, to thread your work together, your, your history together and your work and starting from fourth grade to, the PhD to Dr. Minna to, and now, you know, going to the bedside, yeah. but, but now you have, you have, the, you're going to get the best of, of both. And I, when I say best, it's like, obviously we're dealing about a very serious topic, right. but for right. you personally and for the passion and the work that you do, we need people like you, you know, not only to bring your compassion to the bedside, but also to be doing this amazing work because 
uh, you know, you have such a history. You're not just starting from scratch. You know, you have you have this history, and I love, I I just love hearing about people like you taking that that next step. So congratulations. That is thank that's you. A, that's thank a, you. That's a that's a big step, and I know you also. You also um, mentioned that you're doing some you, you're doing some work with the NCC uh, uh, NCCN guidelines. Yes, most yes. Center. And I, I, you have to tell us about that because I think that was just recently you were on a panel, and yeah. Uh, so I'd yes. love to have you hit, tell us about that. Yeah. So um, the NCCN is the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, and it's the national guidelines that help us and probably many other countries set the standard consensus for how to treat cancer. They also have guidelines for, you know, um, palliative care or pain management, you know, for patients with cancer and, and different supportive measures and how do we help treat nausea and all those different aspects that are very important. You know, what's the appropriate imaging and, um, you know, when do we follow up and what do we do and what, and when do we, you know, observe and when do we, you know, um, pass go and collect $200, you know, so, um, those guidelines for the NCCN are, are quite instrumental. And so they, you know, each major type of cancer, you know, including lung cancer, uh, they meet yearly and review all the different guidelines and evidence and has anything changed? Do we need to update? Do we need to incorporate? And so as part of that, there is a non-small cell lung cancer panel and there's a small cell lung cancer panel. And so uh, serendipitously, um, you know, the, Indiana University was added as a 32nd institution into the NCCN the year I joined faculty um, at IU. And so they asked, IU asked me to represent Indiana University on the panel for small cell. And so, you know, what an, what an honor and just an opportunity to learn and to, you know, advocate for our patients. And so we actually just met last week for the 2023 guidelines going forward. And you know, I'm locked to the confidentiality of the panel, but some exciting, I think, changes are coming out um, and, you know, how we can support our patients and get, um, you know, the care that they need that will help them improve their outcomes and live longer, you know, just an honor, true honor. Yeah, I'll bet it is. And again, lucky to have you. And and again, when I, when I piece together your life, you know, it's, it's it's not a coincidence where you are, you know, today, and it's it's actually, uh, gosh, I'm just humbled by hearing hearing your the story about how your your the trajectory of your career is just is just really going in such a positive direction, and your it's to the passions that you that you have from from when you were when you were much younger. So I I have to yeah, and I want to talk. I want to go back to you know something that you that really hit me when we when we first met. You talked about what an honor it is to serve at the bedside of patients, um, in being a cheerleader and advocate, and and how you felt that was really humbling. And it really touched me when you when you when you told me that. I would love to have you share that with us. Yeah, you know, I think um, you know, cancer is just is incredibly unfair, um, and. You know, everyone's battle is is personal, and it's it's tough, and it's scary, and it's incredibly overwhelming. Um, and I think it's really important to support patients um, like it was yourself. You know, I think you know, still being human and still 
um, you know, addressing the underlying person. It's not just a scan or a diagnosis, but it's a, it's a person with a real life and family and, you know, um, wants and needs and responsibilities. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's really important to, to look at the whole picture and to support patients and support their families, you know, cause this can be life-changing. It'd be devastating. And, um, you know, we as oncologists have to be aware of that and to support patients. And, um, you know, it, it is an incredible honor to serve. It's an incredible responsibility. You know, it's a, it's a huge weight, um, to carry. And it's a, a weight that I will always, you know, cherish carrying, you know, um, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's it, cancer is just, it's, it's so unfair. And, um, you know, however we can help someone on their journey, you know, help understand to advocate, to be empowered, to have the information, to have the strength, the encouragement, you know, that's, I'm, that's, that's my, my role, you know, to help guide someone to help hold their hand or, you know, put a hand on their shoulder and, and tell them you've got this. It's, you know, we're going to get through it together. Um, I, I wouldn't, you know, replace it for the world. Yeah. And I, I see a lot of that. And again, with a lot of the people that I know in the, in the lung cancer uh, treatment world, uh, an oncologist that I speak with talk about that, um, you know, really being human and really connecting with the patients and under, and seeing the patients as a, as a whole person and not just as a, as another number coming through the door and how important that is because the pay, as you said, the, the these patients have lives and families and care people that love them and, and dreams and hopes. And, and so if you see the entire person and it also might help with sort of the, some of the challenges that somebody might be having, you know, with access to care or coming to getting to appointments or not having the resources to have transportation or some of those, those things. So really understanding the more we, I feel like the more we can understand about a patient, not the, not in the time that you see the patient sitting in front of you in the clinic, but understanding the other 90% of their, of their life because they have, they have lives. Right. And, and so you can kind of, not only do you, do you, you have the empathy and compassion to, 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 to understand that, but you can also be human yourself with, with whatever limitations you have to put on that. Cause my, I've told you my wife is a NICU nurse. And so she has similar, you know, challenges, but um, don't you feel that that's really, that's what really makes a good doctor is, is to have that ability to connect with people that way? I think so. I think that every physician has that. I think, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, listening to that, that piece of it, you know, I guess I'm a little more biased, um, you know, going through it and living it, um, you know, losing my dad and, um, yep. that it, it's, you know, it's just something that really meant a lot to me. And so I, um, I, I try to incorporate that into my daily practice and, and that, you know, every single patient is so special and, um, and however I can support them in their fight. And, and I think that all doctors are very, you know, kind and empathetic. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to discount anybody, 
here. Um, I think that especially oncologists have to have a special place in their heart to do what you do and, and to see some of the, the devastating things that we see. And just like your wife is a, is a NICU nurse, you know, um, you have to have a, plus, a special place in your heart, you know, because I think that, um, you know, all doctors are very uh, altruistic and, um, and, and really want to do good and are very kind and empathetic. And, you know, I think we just have to incorporate that into our practices more and listen to that and not think that we have to be, you know, dehumanized or be those robots that you just are, you know, plug and chug and onto the next thing. You know, I think that, you know, you, you've got to address the whole person with, with patients and, um, and it really does matter. Absolutely. Yeah, it really does. And, and I mentioned my wife and for, um, for those of you who don't know, NICU is newborn ICU. So she, she works, you know, with a lot of these premature babies, you know, and as small as a pound, you know, they're, it, it's, it's crazy. Um, but I've also, also said that there are people that in oncology that are like, oh, I can't believe the work that your wife does. Like, it must be so hard. And I'm like, well, and I, it's right back at you because what you're doing is very, is, is similar because you're, you're talking about life and death. You're talking about how it impacts a family. You're, in, in her case, it's dealing with, you're not dealing with the patient as a, you know, communicating with the patient because they're just little babies, but you're dealing with the family, you know, and, and they're at one of the, what's, you know, most critical times, you know, a mother gives birth to a baby and they're in a, they're in an ICU and it's all new to them. And, and so y you mentioned when we met, you know, that sort of, because this, this does impact us as humans, it does impact you as a, as a uh, provider, as, as an, as a clinician, how do you, you know, when you go home or how do, on the way home, I know you've talked about your morning drive is, in your words, it was untouchable, which I think is great. But uh, if you can share with us, I, I always love hearing, like, how do you then make that transition back, you know, to you, because you have your own family. Um, and so, so can you, if anything you'd like to share about that, I would love to hear. Yeah, I don't know if I have a magic formula for this one. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I think that there, you know, every patient is incredibly special and there's some stories that hit a little too close to home sometimes. And, uh, you know, I, I just have to be strong and, uh, you know, be able to help them in their fight and, and put, you know, those kind of emotions um, to the side and, um, you know, try to be as objective as I can, um, but still be strong because that's what my patients need. I, I need to be strong for them and I'm their advocate, you know, they're their advocate and they're the best advocate. Um, but I, I have to be strong too, um, and, and help them, uh, you know, lead through this fight with cancer. And so, you know, I don't know if I have the, the, the right answer or the, you know, golden ticket here, but, um, you know, my untouchable drive in the morning is, uh, you know, to deviate a little bit here is, is, is very important to me. And, um, you know, I, I'm a Christian. I, you know, walk with God and, and, um, you know, with, uh, you know, Jesus as my savior. And this is, this is my fight. You know, this is my battle. And, uh, I feel like this is what I was placed on earth to do and, and to help, um, so that's where I find a lot of my inspiration and that's why my morning drives are untouchable um, and have been for many years. So 
Yeah, I think, you know, um, we have to all find our inspiration of what it is that helps us get up in the morning and be the best version of ourselves. And, you know, especially for anybody who's a physician or, or treats patients, including, you know, nurses and other providers, you know, I think that you have to find passion and inspiration because, you know, medicine can be very tough. It can be very tough, especially when you lose patients you're close to. Yep. Or their fight is, you know, unfair, you know, a young mother or, you know, some, we see a lot of this with patients that um, have had no risk factors or any rhyme or reason. And so, you know, I think that we as the medical community have to be, um, you know, we have to be tough, um, but still human. I think that's so important. Um, but, it, you know, you have to have inspiration. You have to wake up every morning focused to be the best version of yourself for your patients. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I, that's beautiful. And I, I go back to, you know, you know, as a non-scientist, but someone who is a research evangelist, because I am just appreciative and grateful of the work that people like you are doing and particularly in something, you know, as, 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 as challenging and hard as, as small cell lung cancer is. And, you know, we hear a lot about these great breakthroughs in non-small lung cancer and targeted therapies and immunotherapies and all these, which is amazing. But this is great for me personally to, to, to talk with somebody like you and to Dr. Porter I talked with last week to really talk to people about small cell lung cancer because maybe it doesn't get as much attention or doesn't get as, we're not shining a light on the work that's being done. And, and, and talking to you just gives, provides hope. And so when I share this episode, I'm going to try to make sure that I emphasize, you know, the, 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 the people who are impacted by small cell lung cancer know of people like you. Uh, and that's really kind of the point of my podcast is to make sure that, that there are people that can come across this, this conversation and, and, and get to know somebody like you and the mentors that came before you and the colleagues that are working with you, collaborating with you. And, and it's just, it's so inspiring to me. You know, so so I really, I really, I really do appreciate that um, very much. So, and I and I, I, I probably should dedicate more time to having conversations in small cell lung cancer because, uh, because of the inspiration that I've gained from 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 getting to know you. So, uh, there's one thing I always ask my guests. I have to ask them uh, after at the end of every show is, um, and not to put down the spot, uh, Missy, but. Outside of work, tell us something that you're passionate about or that people might not know about you. Yeah, so um, a few things, I guess, about me. I'm, a, I'm married. Gosh, uh, I've been married 14 years now, I have to think about it. Um, <laughs> I've, got, I've got two lovely kiddos um, who are, uh, my son is six and my daughter is four. Um, and, you know, outside of work, the one thing I, I love to do is is design, as interior design. I um, like to think of my husband and I as a mini Chip and Joanna Gaines. Uh, we <laughs> love we've renovated four homes, and I absolutely love it. It's something he and I do together. We kind of have this um, rustic French country uh, design aesthetic, and I absolutely love it. It's something that we're we do together. It's, it's creative. It's an outlet for me. And, uh, it's a, surely a, a passion that, that I enjoy. I also like baking and cooking. You know, I love trying new recipes and it's like, you know, science that you can eat, you know, <laughs> in a way. So I also like that. And, um, and I can make a mean uh, chocolate chip cookie. So 
Nice. I love it. I love it. my favorite. My favorite. Yeah, absolutely. No, I love it. And so, I, I was, people don't see, uh, but in your, in your Zoom background, I can see your, your kitchen and family room and it looks fake because it's just so perfect. And so uh, you're actually good at, uh, at the interior design. So, but I, but I, and also appreciate the baking because my wife's a big baker. And, and, and so again, tying it back, excuse me, tying it back to the work that she does, you know, she, she, she'll bake before she goes to her shift. She's, she works the night shift. So every night before she's working tonight, as a matter of fact, so at like four o'clock, she'll be baking something. So she's always bringing things into the, into the unit uh, to share with everybody. So um, that's wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it you know, but great responsibility because it's like, well, Rez, what did you bring today? It's like they <laughs> they become dependent upon her for the snack. Yeah, that's <laughs> anyway, true. That's true. But anyway, thank yeah, uh, Missy, thank you so much um, uh, for the work that you do, for your commitment, your compassion, and your empathy, um, and for um, just the just the the gift that you bring to work every day. Um, and uh, for your patience and for the amazing research that you're doing. And thank you so much for being on my show. I, I, I really appreciate it. It's great to, great to have you. It's, it's been, a, uh, you know, my pleasure. This has been absolutely wonderful. You know, thank you for you know, asking about my story and, and allowing me to you know, speak about small cell lung cancer and, and get the word out. And, you know, there are so many exciting trials and studies. I really think in the next few years we're going to transform this disease so thank you absolutely